And let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening, this special topic Thursday, an evening that is really devoted to your questions. Now, this Thursday is a little different because <laughs> there's been a bit of a technical glitch. I lost a program from some five, six months ago, and it was a program that uh, was very important to the archives because it was a question I responded to, a program that was devoted to responding to a very important question on the Old Testament. And so what I thought I would do is go back to that question, answer it again, but uh, just not give you what I said five, six months ago. Take what we talked about and really develop it, uh, develop it out from what we've talked about. Now, the question is, as I received it five, six months ago, what do the key Old Testament figures have to teach us on matters of the spiritual life? And in a kind of part B to the question, if you will, do we need them anymore now that we have Christ? Okay, so a very important question that will allow us to talk about the importance of Old Testament figures, huh? I mean, on one hand, yeah. Uh, to that second part of the question, <laughs> sure, Jesus is the sum total of truth, but if we are going to appreciate the fulfillment, and again, remember, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment to the prophetic thrust of the Old Testament, right? We would be well served to not only get to know the story behind the promise, but the figures that carried with them the great promise, if you will. So again, the answer is yes, we need to get to know them. And as we do, what we will soon realize is that they have much to teach us. Uh, on matters of the, the spiritual life, in particular on prayer. In point of fact, there is a beautiful line that comes to us from the Catechism, and I think it's paragraph uh, 2567, maybe 2568, that says, Prayer is bound up in with human history. It is relationship with God, or it is relationship with God in historical events. So there that line kind of captures something of the Old Testament. So, with that, let us first consider maybe God walking with Adam in the cool of the day, that uh, very famous passage that we are all familiar with, where God is walking with Adam in the cool of the day. Really, that is the first place where we see a kind of prayer, an aspect of prayer, if you will, in the Old Testament. So, in this phrase, walking with God, we are really drawn to the essence of what prayer is all about, right? Conversation with God. To walk with God is to talk with God and really enter into that which belongs to any life-giving conversation. Someone listening and someone responding. As I often like to say, how can we possibly know what needs to be said if what is being said is not first heard? I'm one of 11 kids and growing up in a family of 11, really with my mom and dad in a family of 13, there was very little lag time, dead air time, if you will. So when there was, we would just all jump in. 
We wanted our voices to be heard. So I myself have needed to learn the art of listening, if you will, the art of engaging that encounter for what it is, meeting that person where they are at, asking the necessary questions and listening. And out from that listening, then asking God for all the right things that need to be said. We so often think that we have all the answers that we don't listen. Brothers and sisters, conversation is always about that listen-response dynamic. Consequently, how we converse with God must be caught up in this listen-response dynamic. If we were to put this teaching point about conversation within the context of our walk with God, I think we can then maybe better understand that uh, only until we are properly disposed to listen to God will we then be able to genuinely walk with God. Brothers and sisters, God meets us exactly how He made us and walks with us exactly as He is. And His deepest desire is that in this walk, we desire listening to Him as much as He desires listening to us, right? He's constantly seeking us out. Are we seeking Him out? Incidentally, my friends, what is the first question asked in the Old Testament? What does God say to Adam and Eve? Where are you? Where are you? Contrast that with the first question asked in the New Testament by the Magi. Where is he? So in the Old Testament, you have God searching out man, right? Where are you? God knows where we are, but he's asking the question that (laughs) there might be a question drawn out from us. A question that is really a response with our whole life. Where is he? Are we like the Magi, seeking out God just as much as God is seeking out us? All right. So it is. When we walk with God, we begin to see that each and every moment is pregnant with eternal significance. What is that all-important passage that comes to us from Romans chapter 12, verse 1? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, which is your spiritual worship. So when we walk with God, my friends, everything that we then do is what? But an offering to God. The more we talk with God, the more God will engage us, encounter us, inform us, and how we are called to walk with Him. And as we do, we will be made to understand the importance of offering what we do to God. As I've spoken to it before, if you're a mechanic, then the engine you're working on is your altar, right? If you're a CPA, maybe the desk and the computer that you are working at is your altar, is your offering, is, I dare say, your holocaust. Okay, so walking with God, so important. Now, all that being said, one of the leading figures, of course, in the Old Testament Uh, that has much to teach us on the spiritual life is the figure of Abraham, especially prayer, whose very life really draws out the deeper meaning of the spiritual life and and what prayer is all about in our firm response and our faithfulness. Now, the story of Abraham is fascinating. It is a story that is really highlighted by the, in the Hebrew, uh, Akedah, Akedah, the binding of Isaac. Now, in a manner of speaking, the whole narrative 
that encircles Abraham would seem to place God almost at odds with himself. I remember my professor telling me this long ago, and I thought, well, what do you mean by that? So what did my professor mean by that? Well, here you have Abraham, the bearer of the great promise that he was to be the father of all nations. And what happens? Years pass by, and at a very elderly age, his wife, Sarah, bears a son, Isaac. Isaac, of course, is everything to Abraham. Not only his beloved son, but the one from which his line will prevail that he indeed would become the father to all nations. Now, fast forward roughly 11, 12 years. And what does God ask Abraham to do? But to sacrifice his son as a holocaust to him. Imagine that. What must Abraham be thinking? First, I mean, what father asks another father to kill a son? And oh, by the way, my dear friends, Abraham would have the right to inquire, uh, excuse me, God, what about your promise, right? This is what my professor was speaking to. This whole narrative seems to put God at odds with himself. But herein lies the all-important question. Why doesn't he? What is the hinge to the story? But obedience. Obey me, God says. And certainly, as a footnote, we could say that in a culture that seemingly raises up the rebel, the person who says no to all the right things, the, the virtue of obedience is seen really to be something that is altogether foreign. And I dare say, my friends, quite frankly, weak. But there is something else going on here. God is love. Through and through. Mysterious, <laughs> yes, but nonetheless, absolute love. Abraham is not obedient to a tyrant, my friends, but obedient to God who is love. Remember how we have talked about this in the past. I was just talking about this with Father Mike last night. What is love? Love means to will the good of the other. Uh, and my friends, this is the absolute essence of God, where he wills our best interest. There is not one iota of self-interestedness in God, okay? So Abraham is obedient to the one who only wants the best of the best for him. And his faithfulness is so great that in fear and trembling, he obeys even the most confounding of all requests to sacrifice his own son. This is the greatness of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. So certainly one of the key aspects of prayer and and what Abraham teaches us and why we need to know about him is his fidelity to God. We can learn so much about his fidelity to God. Remember that when you go into the Old Testament, you never really see the word faith, but faithfulness. Why? Because faith is about what? But the firm response, just not the assent of belief, but at the same time, the firm response, the response of listening, uh, the emunah in the Hebrew. Okay, and you can hear in that emunah, that faithfulness, trust, right? Firm response, obedient response. Trust is the most concrete act and virtue of faith. Isn't it an extraordinary thing that at the age of 75, Abraham is called by God to go in search of a place he did not know? And God says what to Abraham? You know nothing of the dangers that 
you may face, the people you will encounter, the hardships you will have to endure, but go, go. Extraordinary faithfulness. I mean, how many times in our life has God asked us to do something extraordinary? And we just said, ah, I don't want to have to deal with all of the trial, all of the hardship, all of those circumstances that I cannot predict. Oh, my friends, Abraham has so much to teach us. Uh, Something else here with the story of Abraham, and again, this was something that was observed by a former professor of mine, is that his whole life points forward. What do I mean by that? Well, a dynamic of walking from the present to the future, of walking along the path of what we could say is yet to come. And as he walks in this mode, what does he do but brings blessings to all because his very existence is open to the what but yet to come. This, my friends, is also the path for us that we, in the spirit of Philippians chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, uh, walk this path. What is Philippians 2, 12? That we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. How do we do this? But by like Abraham, live our life pointing forward. That whole dynamic of walking from the present to the future. Just that constant openness to something more, that God wants to constantly do something, right? Now, moving forward in Old Testament Revelation, who else do we have? How about the story of Jacob? Here we are made to see prayer as a battle of faith. And really a triumph of what but perseverance, right? uh, We see Jacob wrestling with the angel, where God says to Jacob, how bad do you want it? How hard are you going to try to beat him? I have two sons, and sometimes I'll just watch them roughhouse, and and from time to time they start to wrestle. And I I don't always break it up, even if it gets too intense, because... (laughs) I like to see the younger one wrestle out. How bad does he want what he's searching for, what he's looking for on the other side of this battle? Now, often I do have to intervene, right, as the father. But I'm made to think about that, and certainly as one of 11 kids as well, I would wrestle a lot with my brothers. And usually there was a prize on the other side of it, even if it was just... Uh, winning something. With Jacob, he's wrestling with the angel. And God wants us to see that there's something beautiful when it comes to persevering in him, especially in prayer. What does James chapter 1 verse 4 say? Patience perfects all things. Perseverance perfects all things. God desires perseverance. God desires patience. And I'll tell you something, and I know we've all been there. In the here and now, that means a struggle that is incredibly difficult. And yeah, we can put this in the context of wrestling, because isn't that what we often do? Wrestle with this or that. God says it's okay to wrestle as long as you are persevering in me. So let your wrestling be something of a prayer as Jacob wrestles with the angel. And in that perseverance, of course, he receives his blessing. All right, how about the figure of Moses? 
there's so many things we can talk about with the figure of Moses, but I want to draw our attention to, well, what we can call the fountainhead of all virtues, and that is humility. Humility. What do we read in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3? That Moses was the most humble man in all the earth. And what does it mean to say that? That Moses was the most humble man in all the earth. It means that Moses made a very realistic assessment of who he was, and he put that unillusioned judgment into practice. Moses never judged himself to be smaller or larger than he really was. And in so doing, he avoided those moments of despair, as well as pride, that often besiege us when we are caught up in those vices that uh, distract us from humility, right? So consequently, Moses, and really the humble person in general, enjoys the freedom to be who he was intended to be, right? The humble person is never troubled by reputation. The humble person is never uh, troubled by self-interest or even failure. The humble person does not feel obliged to defend an imaginary self to people who do not know who he really is, nor does the humble person expect others to be who they are not. You see, my friends, the humble person simply has no business in trading for unrealities. He just accepts who he is, and in that acceptance, he abides in that all-important truth of being free in God, because he is not saddened by who he is not, but joyful for who he is, and it opens him up to be someone great, which, of course, leads to what? But great prayer, all great prayer begins in humility, as it frees up prayer to express itself as it ought. And amen to that. Amen to when prayer opens us up to how God wants to move and shake us up, right? Now again, there are certainly other things to consider with Moses, to the least of which is his role as mediator. But for the sake of time, I want to move forward and consider another key figure to the spiritual life, and that is David, especially the prayer of David as it is found in the Psalms. First of all, we should be reminded that if the Bible is the most popular book in the world and the Psalms are the most frequently read book within the Bible, then the book of Psalms is what? <laughs> the most popular book in the whole world, or chapters within a book in the whole world, huh? And what is the catch? Well, the Psalms are just not hymns, but liturgical hymns of prayer. In other words, my friends, the most popular book in the whole world is about prayer, and certainly, above all else, liturgy in prayer. So when we talk about the Psalms, we are to understand that we just don't read the Psalms, but we pray the Psalms. I mean, really, could we not say that every time you read a verse in sacred scripture, you're praying to God, getting to know more about God? Now, to pray the Psalms regularly, to become so familiar with them that they spring forth from your heart and mind, is really to shape your heart and mind according to the heart of God. And I think this to be a beautiful truth. So again, let's go back to that question. Why should we spend time with Old Testament figures? And here we're talking about David. 
well, my friends, to go deeper into just not prayer, but hear what was going on in the heart of David. Because remember, he was a man after God's own heart. Don't we want to learn from a man who was after God's own heart? And he was because he kept his sins before him like a thin veneer. And so should we. We read in Psalm chapter 51, verse 3, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Brothers and sisters, should we not have such a prayer on our lips, in our heart? David's repentant heart went with him wherever he went. What did we just say about humility? He was free to be who he was because he did not busy himself to be something he was not. Which leads really to another aspect of prayer that that comes to us from the Psalms of David. That prayer ought to be something simple and spontaneous. What do we mean by simple? Our words do not always have to be dressed up in all this fancy language, but have to be words uttered from the heart, simple and to the point. Huh? Spontaneous prayer brings us back to really what rightfully belongs to walking with God, speaking to Jesus as you would a friend. You know how we go through our days and we are prompted to to call a friend to talk about one particular thing, maybe seeking advice? Brothers and sisters, God desires the same. The Psalms are filled with the widest possible range of feelings and emotions, which are expressed as what but prayer with God. Join anguish, victory and defeat, praise and complaint, certainty and doubt, on and on. This is what the Psalms are about. So become familiar with the Psalms, and and you will not only become familiar with David's heart, which is important, but how to pray better. But how to pray better. All right, I'm looking up at the clock. Maybe we have enough time for one more key figure. How about Elijah? We all know the story. It was in the aftermath of Elijah's brilliant victory in the contest with Jezebel that Elijah receives a message from Jezebel telling him what, but of her murderous intentions. And it is there that we read that Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 3, was afraid. So what does he do? He flees south into the wilderness of the desert. And there his mood is one of defeat and desolation to the point that he actually wants to die. We read in 1 Kings 19, 4, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Elijah is about as low as he can possibly go, as low as he can possibly be. And it is precisely then that God rides in and comes to his aid. What is going on here? When our ego is riding high, confident in its own power and resourcefulness, it rarely reaches out to God. But boy, (laughs) when our ego is knocked around, when our ego is wounded, when our ego is powerless, ah yes, it is then that God rides in. St. Paul understood this well when he says that he boasts in his weakness. Essentially, my friends, when we feel powerful, what do we do? We keep God at bay. 
we keep him at arm's distance. But when we feel powerless, it is then that we open the door to his knocking. You see, Elijah discovers that God is encountered when the activity ceases and the words stop. When the heart is sad and and the stomach is filled with pangs of hunger. Only when Elijah's mind and heart are finally empty of ambition and, and, oh, what we can call (laughs) self-promotion. Have any of us done that? Is God ultimately heard? This is the place of authentic conversion. And as the Catechism reminds us, once we are committed to conversion, the heart learns to pray in faith. The place of that, of that single-hearted prayer. You know, one of my favorite things to talk about is that beatitude, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. The Greek, therefore, purity or pure is kathados. Kathados, the actual Greek translates as without mixture to be one thing to be one thing for what not what but who god right you see my friends the pure of heart possess a single heartedness that has been consecrated to god elijah was a man who learned through his very dark night what it means to be single hearted for god and that my friends i think is quintessential in the spiritual life especially as we again put this in the context of prayer So this evening, as I respond to your question about do we need to know about Old Testament figures, hopefully, hopefully you now know why it is so important to spend time with these Old Testament figures, because they have something to teach us about the beauty of our Christian faith. Yes, Jesus came to fulfill the great prophetic thrust of the Old Testament, right? He came to fulfill a very specific promise. But what did Jesus himself say? I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, transform it. We don't disregard it. We, in point of fact, pay closer attention to it so that we might better understand who Christ is. Huh? All right. Very good. So I'm glad we were able to have this time, and I'll be sure that we don't have that technical glitch, because I get questions surrounding Old Testament figures all the time all the time. So again, I I did think it was important to spend the time we did today and to, as we reflected into things we've talked about in the past, I I do think we had the chance to develop them a bit as well in the short time we had. All right, with that, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.